Good morning, church. If you haven't already, start finding 1 Peter in your Bible. 1 Peter. We've been walking our way through this amazing letter. Hopefully you have found it to be an encouragement that it has strengthened and quickened your heart. I know it has mine. Hardships, holiness, and hope. Hardships, holiness, and hope. We've entered into the back half of the letter last week. Chapter 3, verse 8. The section that we're in now, this back half of the letter, the whole letter has focused on suffering, but he's really going to hone in on this theme of suffering from here on out. So Pastor Mark kind of kicked this off last week, and this week we will continue to drill down into what Peter's talking about in terms of our suffering. Suffering is normal, isn't it? We can lose sight of that. We live in America in the 21st century, and it's easy for us to kind of lose sight of the normalcy of suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering for good. In Peter's day, uh, he's living under the reign of Emperor Nero, and it's about to go from bad to worse in his life. He's actually going to be executed by Emperor Nero, isn't he? And so there is a normalcy to suffering for the cause of Christ. Did you know that 260 million Christians are facing extreme persecution today? More than at any other time in Christian history. That's one out of every nine Christians. Over the last year, every day, eight Christians were killed for their faith. Again, this is something that we lose sight of here in America. We see, we see Phil Walton being rescued. He's it's been on all the news outlets. We see a, a missionary family whose son was kidnapped, probably going to be sold off to terrorists, and, and dramatically rescued by SEAL Team 6, right? And it gets in the news, and now suddenly we're kind of aware, oh, this is a thing. Christians are attacked. But it's happening every day all around us, isn't it? And we would be fools as Christians in America today to not understand that it's, it's just a matter of time before it gets worse here, right? No matter who's elected, no, no, matter, no matter what happens on Tuesday, we have to understand that suffering for Christ is normal. Suffering for righteousness is normal. And Peter makes that case by taking them all the way back to Noah in the text. Did you notice that? Noah, a preacher of righteousness who suffered for his righteousness. He was an outcast. He was a persecuted minority. He had to battle against evil spirits over a long course of time. And Peter is saying to his his audience at his time, 2,000 years ago, you are the same. You are exiles and strangers. You You are ministers of righteousness. You are outcasts, suffering, persecuted, few in number, at the hands of evil spirits, and you're waiting for your redemption. And then comes us today. We are the same. We are the same as Noah. We are the same as Peter's audience. We are exiles. We are persecuted. We are few in number. We are battling against evil spirits, and we are, we are waiting for the return of Christ, aren't we? In verse 17, the verse right before our section today, it, Peter says, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. It is God's will that we suffer, isn't it? For doing good. Why? 
Why would it be God's will for us to suffer? Because of sin. You see, God's top priority in this age in which we live, His top priority right now is not to eliminate suffering, but to eliminate sin. He will return one day. We call it the second coming. Christ will return one day and He will eliminate all suffering. But that is not today. Today, His objective is to eliminate the sin from your heart, from your neighbor's heart, from the person next to you's heart. That's His top priority. And so we need hope. Verse 15, always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Our suffering reveals our hope, doesn't it? That's why suffering can be a really good thing in our hearts, because it can actually expose our hearts. It can actually reveal what, where our hope lies. Is my hope in an election? Is my hope in a vaccine? Is my, is my hope into a return to normalcy like we prayed about? Or is my hope in the living Christ? That's the question. And as we suffer... Our hearts are ripped open, aren't they? And they are exposed. We need hope. We need a reason for our hope. So I'm going to give you three reasons for our hope this morning. The first one's going to be finding hope in the defeat of Christ. Then we're going to talk about finding hope in the victory of Christ. And then we're going to talk about finding hope in the good conscience. In the good conscience. Those are three ideas that we see here in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. So number one, finding our, hope, finding our hope in the defeat of Christ. Finding our hope in the defeat of Christ. And so let your eyes go to verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Every word in this verse church is a treasure. Every word, every phrase in this beautiful verse is a treasure. So we're going to break it down. You ready? For Christ, for Christ, our hope is in the Christ, the Messiah. Of course, they had a hope. Peter, Peter learned this vividly when Jesus looked at him one day and said, who do you say I am? Do you remember that story? And his answer, you are the Christ the Son of the living God, which all of us say, yes, correct answer. And Jesus says, nope, not enough. Not enough. The Christ, I'm going to show you how the Christ has to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to suffer, and he's going to die. And do you remember what Peter says? Not on my watch. That's not happening to you while I'm your best friend. And do you remember Jesus' response to that? Get behind me, Satan. See, we need to gain the understanding of the word Christ that they had, that Peter now has as he writes this letter, that the Christ is the suffering Christ. He's not the political Messiah that they all thought was coming. He is the spiritual Messiah who has come to suffer for us. Church, our hope is not in a law, it is not in a system, it is not in an ethic, it is not in a religious code, it is not in astrology, it's not in yoga, it's not in self-help and self-betterment. Our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ, for Christ, also suffered, for Christ, also suffered, that means he died. Peter's taking us back to Isaiah 53 
We have a suffering Messiah, a suffering God. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By His wounds we are healed. The Christ suffered for us. And if you track all the way through Isaiah, you learn that the suffering servant Messiah that God sends is God Himself. That's who Jesus is. He is the God-man who suffered for us. He suffered once, it says. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Christian, there is no need for the repetition of Christ's death on the cross. He died once for sins. Sins are atoned for fully and completely by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Hebrews 9.12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, his own life, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christian, that should melt your heart this morning. That should, that should bolster your being. That Jesus Christ died once for sin. Christian, there is nothing that you are doing that is achieving more forgiveness or more salvation for you. You have all the Christ you're going to get. You have all the Holy Spirit you're going to get. You got all the, all the salvation you're ever going to get. We use language like God can, God will, God may. No, God has. God has. He has done it. To tell us die. It is finished. Stop looking for something that God has already done. For Christ also suffered once for sins, it says. For sins. This is what we call penal substitutionary atonement, which is just a big fancy way of saying Jesus died for your sins. You deserve punishment. Why? Because you're a sinner. You have violated God. You have violated God's standards. You have broken God's laws. And the, and the wage of sin is what? Death. Jesus Christ has died for your sin debt. He has paid it in your place. He took the just punishment that you deserve. Now there is no condemnation, no controlling power of sin over you. Romans 6.11 So you also must consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Your very real and objective guilt exists no longer, Christian. Now, you might feel guilty. You might be feeling subjective guilt. And we're going to get to that in point three. But your objective guilt, you were guilty, now you are not. Because Jesus Christ has, has taken that for you. If by faith you trust in him. The righteous for the unrighteous. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus Christ is the only sinless person who has ever lived. Peter has already made this clear back in uh, chapter 1, verse 19. He is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. In chapter 2, he explicitly said there was no sin in him. He was taken to the cross without sin. 
Jesus died as the righteous for you, the unrighteous. Paul explains it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that you and me might become the righteousness of God. We call this the great exchange, don't we? That in Christ, now we receive His righteousness because He received our sin. This is called vicarious atonement. An atonement in our place. This is called imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. In Romans 4, Paul says that God declares the ungodly to be righteous. Church, that's us. We are ungodly. All I got to do is spend more than two or three days at your house, and I will know that you are ungodly, right? You can fake it for a couple days, but after three days, I'm going to be so on your nerves that your ungodliness will shine through. Now, what does the scripture say? It says that God has taken the ungodly and declared them to be godly, to declared them to be righteous. We call this imputed righteousness. Now, the death of Christ is at work in us. Why did Jesus suffer? For sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Listen to me very carefully. I want to make this very clear. Jesus is the only person who could die for your sins. Okay? I, I cannot do that for you. Pastor Mark, Pastor Bill, Pastor Jamie, Pastor Andrew, they cannot die for your sins. These guys are as messed up as you are. Trust me. <laughs> love, love. <laughs> we're, all messed, we're all messed up. But listen, there is a model for us in the death of Christ. Why do we suffer? We suffer so that as we suffer in hope, we su I, I am suffering for your sins to help expose your sin. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4. Death at work in us, life in you. In Colossians, he'll use the strange phrase, I'm filling up what is lacking in the death of Christ. By suffering, I'm filling up what is lacking. It doesn't mean that the cross was insufficient, but it means that we express the cross as we suffer. Why do we suffer? To help bring others to God. Remember what, what we said a few weeks ago. If you're choosing to love, you're choosing to suffer, aren't you? And if you're choosing to love your enemy, you're going to choose to suffer for righteousness. Why do we do it, church? To bring others to God. That He might bring us to God. That's our next phrase. Jesus has brought us to God. He has entered into the Holy of Holies. He has brought us with us on His back into God's presence like the priests of old, they could not bring all of the congregation into the holy place, could they? They could not bring all of the congregation into the holiest place, could they? One guy, one day a year, with bells on and a rope tied to his leg, walks into that room and meets God. Not so anymore, is it? Now your heart is the holiest place. Your heart is the temple of the living God. We enter into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. 
Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, Satan wants you to believe that every time you're sinning or suffering or that, that subjective guilt creeps in, he wants you to think that you're separated from God, that you have no more access to God, that, God, that you've wandered far from God. Christians go around saying, I'm so far from God right now. Answer, no, you're not. God lives in you. You are never far from God. You just think you are. Jesus has brought you there. How? Being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit, crucified in the body. He's a human. He's a man. He's your human Savior. The man Christ Jesus rules on the throne of God. Made alive in the Spirit. He was resurrected. He was vindicated by God. Declared to be righteous. Lesson two. So we find our hope in the, in the defeat of Jesus on the cross. But church, Jesus didn't stay on the cross, did he? Jesus didn't stay in a position of defeat, did he? In fact, his defeat was actually his victory, wasn't it? His defeat was your victory, wasn't it? And that's where Peter will go next. Asking us to find our hope in the victory of Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 22. This is where he's going to land. I want to show you where he's going to land before I take you back into the confusing stuff. Okay? Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. He is our victory, Christ's final and full victory, as predicted, Psalm 110, verse 1, where God says, the Lord, the Lord has said to my Lord, you will, I will put all your enemies as your footstool, under your feet. This is what's happening. This is what we call the Christus Victor Atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. What happened on the cross? Did Jesus die for our sins or did Jesus die to conquer all our enemies? Yes! <laughs> the answer is yes! Theologians and scholars spill oceans of ink debating the two. They're both true. Jesus died on the cross to cancel your sin debt and he died on the cross to conquer your enemies. He did both. Praise God. Now, go back to verse 19. These verses are confusing. They're tricky. There are lots of interpretations. But at the end of the day, Peter's giving us more detail to show us the fullness of Christ's victory. Verse 19, "...in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison." Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Yep, your guess is as good as mine, church. <laughs> About Jesus proclaimed his victory to someone, somewhere, at some time. That's what I can say definitively about those verses. But here's what I think it's saying. I think it's saying that Jesus proclaimed his victory 
to the powers and principalities and the, and the angels, the cosmic forces that have been against him, the world, the world system that is controlled by Satan, he proclaimed his victory in his dying and rising. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 2. In speaking about Christ on the cross, Paul says this, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I should say God disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ, is how that should read. Colossians 2, 15. The forces of evil tried to shame Jesus on the cross. They tried to defeat Jesus on the cross. They thought they had won, but they did not. In fact, behind the scenes, Jesus was proclaiming his victory to all of the cosmic forces that have sought to destroy him since the beginning of redemptive history. Oh, death, where is your victory? It is no more. It is no more. Christian, do you know what this means? Every enemy defeated? Do you know what that means for you? Do you have any idea what that means? Do you live in such victory every day? I don't. I let worry come in. I let fear crash in. I let frustration take over. I let temptation rule me. But there's a better way, isn't there? Every power subjected to Christ. Every enemy defeated. The battle is one, but it's still raging though. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, Paul puts it this way. Then will come the end. He's talking about at the resurrection of the dead. At the resurrection of the dead, which by the way, we haven't had yet. Right? We haven't had that yet. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, and then he'll go on to say, and the final enemy is death. He'll finally conquer all his enemies. The final enemy is death. Church, where does that leave us right now today? It leaves us in the already but not yet of this great victory of Jesus Christ. Jesus has already won, and yet the battle is still raging around us, isn't it? As we await the final victory. One of the best illustration I can maybe give you, um, stay with me if you're not a history person, but World War II, in World War II, on D-Day, the Allies invaded France in order to beat the Nazi regime. You with me? At that moment, basically the war was over. The battle was won. We had a foothold in Europe. It was just a matter of time. And in fact, about 10 months later, the war was over, wasn't it? In that 10 months, though, you have the Battle of the Bulge. Do you remember that? The 101st Airborne Division is sitting there in Germany in, in, or Belgium uh, in the snow, freezing, completely surrounded by the German army, waiting for Patton to show up and rescue them. They are courageously fighting off the Germans, holding on, holding on. It's, it's hard. It's suffering. They know they're going to win. They know it's just a matter of time. We're just waiting on the third army to get here with tanks. And then we're going to be okay. Church, that's us. D-Day was when Jesus came as a baby and invaded human history, right? 
And he won victory on the cross, but now it's just a matter of time. And here we are, it feels like we're surrounded, but we know something that the enemy doesn't know, that one day our Savior will come and he will put to death, death. He will put to death all sin and suffering. This changes everything about how we live our lives today, doesn't it? If this is true, we can live without fear, can't we? If this is actually true, we can live knowing that nothing will overcome us. Romans 8, nothing will separate us from the love of God. If this is true, we don't have to be dominated by our guilt and shame, do we? If this is true, we can live out of a whole new identity, can't we? If it's true, we can boldly approach our Father and pray. If this is true, we can do good even when nobody gives it back. If this is true, we can boldly witness, can't we? Even if we might be mocked and scorned. If this is true, no matter who wins an election, we can submit and love and unify, right? If this is true. If this is true, we can forgive We can reconcile. Because what this tells me is that no human being is my enemy, is it? The angels and powers and authorities, that's my enemy. And they're donezo. (laughs) They're defeated. You are not my enemy. No person is. So can I forgive you? Can I reconcile? Can you forgive me and reconcile? I pray that we can. And then lesson three, we find hope in our good conscience. We find hope in our good conscience. Verse 21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, again, this is a tricky verse, isn't it? There's some, there's some hard phrases in here to try to noodle out, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to humbly do my best. But I want us to focus on this phrase, an appeal to God for a good conscience. That word appeal means a pledge. It's the idea of a covenant. We are in a new covenant, aren't we? And by this new covenant, we make a covenant pledge to God for the good conscience. A clear conscience. This is the result of the new covenant, isn't it? If every sin is forgiven, we can actually have a good conscience. In Romans 2.15, Paul explains the conscience of the unbeliever. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So before Christ, everyone's got a conscience. Every human being's got a conscience, right? Jiminy Cricket taught us that, right? Everybody's got a conscience, but before Christ, our conscience does one of two things. It either accuses us or or allows us to make excuses. Well, I'm better than her. I'm better than him. Oh, I'm not not better than him. So we're, we're, we're doomed by our conscience. But in Christ, the conscience is cleansed. 
Hebrews 9, 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you know what that means? That means that our conscience is cleansed. It is purified. No longer do we try to appease our own conscience through dead works. Earning our salvation. Earning our righteousness. That's done. That's no longer part of the Christian's equation, is it? But, no, but notice he says it doesn't mean we stop serving, does it? We, st- we still keep doing things, but we do it from a clear conscience. We do it from the good conscience. This is why now every Christian is living from their conscience. 1 Corinthians, just, this is just a, t- a, a massive passage all about conscience. I'm just giving you a little smidge just to show you. I do not mean your conscience but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? In other words, Paul, in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, Paul does this whole big thing where he explains every Christian has their own conscience, don't they? We call that Christian liberty. You see, church, we are diverse in our ages. We are diverse ethnically. We are diverse socioeconomically. We are diverse politically. But you know what the greatest diverseness is in, the, in, a, in any church? Conscience. Every single Christian has a different conscience. And that conscience is being molded and shaped and guided by the indwelling Holy Spirit. So it is not my job to bind your conscience. It is not my job to tell you what to do unless Jesus Christ himself has specifically told us what to do. Do you understand? And it's not your job to do that with everybody else either. Conscience. Okay, so why can I have a good conscience, Brady? Because you have already passed through judgment. You have already passed through judgment. Your salvation experience is an experience of both the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. You with me? Romans 6.11, which I already quoted, you must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God. You have already died to sin. You have already passed through the judgment of sin. You are in Christ, therefore you are in Him at the cross. I know that's mind-blowing, but that's what the Scripture teaches us. In Christ means I was in Him on the cross. That judgment for sin that Jesus took, that was my sin being judged. Your sin being judged. So because we have already gone through the judgment, in other words, we have already gone through the baptism, is what Peter's teaching us. Baptism is a picture of judgment. It's a picture of judgment. Not, not ju- what does he say? So clearly, Peter is not telling us, because we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. There's that hard phrase in there where it says, baptism now saves you. Did you all catch that? Okay, we've got to be careful because we want to interpret Scripture with Scripture, right? Grace through faith saves us. Amen? No rite, no ritual, no work saves us. So, baptism is clearly being used by Peter as a picture, and he even makes it clear by saying, not the water that washes dirt off you, 
In other words, he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about a spiritual baptism whereby we are redeemed. And he's already made this clear. We are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 19. We have been brought through by Jesus, he says in this passage. Jesus has brought us to God. Okay, so what's happening? What is baptism a picture of? He actually, or, or what should I, I should say, what is a picture of baptism? And he takes us back to Noah and the flood. Okay, what happened at the flood? Water. What was the purpose of the water? Judgment. But that same water that judged the earth also saved those in the ark, didn't it? They were in the ark. That's the, that's the picture of Christ. And they were saved through, verse 20 says, they were saved through the waters or by the waters. Is everybody with me still? So here's what it's saying. Christian, the same thing that is meant to destroy your enemies, the judgment of God, the wrath of God, the same wrath of God and judgment of God that is meant to destroy your enemies now saves you. And Christian, that is good news. That is good news. Paul will, use, Paul will use the Exodus as his picture. In 1 Corinthians, he'll say, as, you, as they passed with Moses through the waters, we have passed through the waters of baptism. Think about the Exodus. The same waters that parted and they went through following the Shekinah glory, which Paul and Jude will both call Jesus, as they followed Jesus through to the other side, and then what happened? Their enemies rode in. You remember the story? Kids, you remember the story? The Egyptians ride in, and then what happens? The water comes down. The same water that would destroy their enemies rescued them. The same waters that destroyed Noah's enemies rescued him. The same judgment that will destroy sin and death rescues you. And if that's true, you can have a good conscience. You can have a good conscience. You've already been judged. But Brady, I do all these bad things. I'm still sinning all the time. Um, what, about, what about last night? What about this past week? That's the enemy. That's the enemy. Go back to your baptism. Remember what happened to you personally at your baptism. If you haven't been baptized, get baptized. Okay? What happened to you at your baptism? What did, what did we symbolize when we dunked you? <laughs> Under the waters of judgment. Did we hold you there? Come on now. I'm being silly, but come on now. Did we hold you there? Did we try to kill you that day? Did anybody call the cops? What did we do? We put you under. We brought you up. You went into judgment. We didn't leave you there. We brought you out. Remember it. Remember it. When the enemy tempts you to despair, we sang, and tell me of the guilt within... What do we do? We look and find him there. 
We remember what we have passed through, that we have passed through the waters of judgment. What if we all lived with a clear conscience? What if we all lived with a good conscience? Oh, what freedom. Oh, what forgiveness. Oh, what love. Oh, what courage might be ours in Christ. How do you know that you're saved today? How do you know that you're saved today? Because you've been baptized? No. No, not because you went into the the tank. No, not because of the physical rite of baptism. How do you know that you're saved today? Because of the clear conscience, the good conscience. Make an appeal to God to remind you of your good conscience, the experience of the good conscience that comes by forgiveness and grace, and then the expression of your good conscience as you witness to the hope of Jesus Christ. What about you? What is your conscience saying to you this morning? Is it accusing you? Or is, it just, is it just something you're using to make excuses? Is your conscience condemning you? Well, then maybe you need Christ. Maybe you need to turn to Christ. Maybe you need to say, I need to be rescued through the very judgment that Christ endured on the cross. But if you're a Christian today, and you say, well, Brady, I'm a Christian, but my conscience is beating me up. Return to your baptism. Remember what it means. Remember what it symbolizes. In other words, return to your salvation. Look and see Him there. Look and see the King of glory interceding for you in the heavenly places. Look and see the nails in His hands, reminding you of what He has done. And then, Christian, live from the good conscience. Live from the good conscience. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you and honor you that you have brought us through judgment by the work of your Son. God, you could have, you could have, you could have just said, oh, these people are so messed up, so sinful, so rebellious. You could have just eliminated us, wiped us out, thrown us all into the pit of hell forever. You could have done that, but you didn't. Why? Because you love us. Why? Because your, your grace just flows out of you. you. Instead, you sent Jesus, you sent yourself, Jesus, the God-man, for us, the righteous, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. God, may we live every day in your presence. God, I pray for the heart out here this morning or listening to me through the live stream whose conscience is destroying them day after day. God, I pray that they would use this as an opportunity to ask the question, have I allowed myself to pass through the judgment of the cross of Christ? Have I received the gift of Jesus' life, his death, his life, his judgment, his vindication? Is that what I'm hoping in? And God, for any Christian who's whose conscience is destroying them today. May they reclaim the good conscience. May they make an appeal to God for the good conscience today based on what you have done. Remind them of their salvation. Remind them of how they passed through judgment and weren't left there, but were brought up out to your praise and your glory. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.